0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot .org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Reel. I'm grateful that you've tuned in today, that you're listening. Today I want to talk to you about why people leave the church And I certainly want to hit on the Mormon perspective, but I also want to tackle this from a more general Christian point of view. There's been lots of research lately talking about the nuns, not the N-U-N-S. I know we always have to preface this word with this conversation, but not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S. This is the largest growing segment when they do religious surveys asking what church people associate themselves with. That if you self-label yourself as a a member of what denomination or religion, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are the largest growing segment. And I think it's to the point where it makes up more than 25% of the population within the United States. And that's fascinating. It's quite fascinating. It's incredible. And so today I thought we'd talk a little bit about why... Members of, of various faiths, specifically various churches, including Mormonism, are walking away and losing, losing trust and belief in any particular institution and are simply associating themselves more generally with Christianity or spirituality or no church or religion or faith at all rather than associate themselves with a particular and specific denomination or religion. And and I need to set up this episode by telling you a little bit about some of the podcasts I have in my podcast app. And, and I don't want to go through all of them. Uh, it would just simply take too long. Uh, but several of them that I think we should draw some attention to. And for those who, you know, hopefully you're listening to the podcast through iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app. But if you like podcasts, and I'm... And you're interested in in learning new things and in and information, then let me at least share with you some of the ones I've got in in my podcast app. One of them is called Life After God. Um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time describing these, but it's a Seventh Day Adventist pastor who spends a year trying out atheism, and and then after the year's over, he starts a podcast. Pretty interesting. Uh, Revisionist history. Uh Radio Lab is an incredible podcast. It's one that I would recommend that all the listeners listen to. Of all the podcasts that are out there, it's my favorite one. Um, Stuff You Missed in History Class. Uh, I've got lots of Mormon ones, the Joseph Smith Papers, uh Thoughtful Faith, Mormon Stories, and others, Mormon Matters, and uh Infants on Thrones, Radio West, which I think Doug Fabrizio does a wonderful job, uh, The Thinking Atheist, Project Zion, which is a Community of Christ podcast, and several others, hardcore history with Dan Carlin, and the reason I say that, the reason I, I give you those, is that every day I get up and I, f- you know, refresh my my podcast uh, app to see what new things have come out, and, and I'm always looking for new information. I always want to learn something new, and and it doesn't matter whether it's Mormonism or history, or or some other kind of cultural insight. Um, I simply want to learn, and I know many of you are like that too. And it's, and it's in this process of learning, it's, it's in this process of taking time to see what other people are like and taking time to learn new things. The, the openness to that happening that I really think is the key to moving through faith development. And, uh, and that pretty much wraps it up, but there's another podcast I just started listening to and that's where this comes in this episode. The, the the podcast is called Progressive Spirit. I think it used to be called This Religious Life, perhaps, but now it's called uh, Progressive Spirit. And I was just listening to an episode um, the other day, and and it was titled uh, "Why They Leave," and it was talking about why why people are leaving their church. and And the gentleman being interviewed in the episode, his name's David Kinneman. And you're going to hear him here in a second. I, I want to play this tidbit, uh, this this soundbite, of him talking about what are the main factors for why people are leaving their churches right now, and and I hope that you can hear what he's saying, and then we can begin to kind of parse these out one by one. And so I turn I turn the time over right here to to a soundbite from David Kinnaman.
1: Well, you know, we went into this book. And the research behind it, assuming that there would be a a smoking gun, a real, you know, glaring problem that the church could correct. Um, You know, frankly, in the previous book that we had done, looking at the perceptions of evangelicals uh, and modern-day Christianity among young non-Christians, we did find a smoking gun, and that was this perception of being anti-homosexual uh, that was the big perception. Mm-hmm. 91% of young non-Christians say that the, the church is anti-homosexual. It's it's against the the lifestyle and and you know attitudes and perspectives of those who are who are gay and lesbian. And um, what we discovered in the you lost me research is that there isn't really a smoking gun. That each of the reasons that people leave are very personal, um, very distinct. Um, there are some broad patterns, so we could say. The church is often perceived as overprotective. It, it had kind of kept people sheltered from the world. Uh, they believe the church is anti-science, that it's sort of out of step with the scientific world that we live in. Uh, they feel as though the church is exclusive, that they have to choose between their faith and their friends. Uh, clearly, sexuality is a huge uh, point of disconnection in terms of you know what the church teaches on various subjects. Uh, to um, you know, a whole host of, of of, of issues that come up in, in terms of sexuality, um, a lot of times there's a, there's a sense in which the church is in a safe place uh, to ask about doubts, uh, to, to express the most you know pressing life questions that they they harbor, and so out of out of those different perceptions, you know each kind of relates to a particular kind of group. So I mean, uh, an exi- exile is very likely to feel as though the church is overprotective. You know, they feel called maybe into performing music or being. Um, in a particular you know kind of career, um, anti-science, also a perception of many exiles. you know they feel as though they'd like to be involved in in a scientific career and and the church sort of gives them uh, you know a, a cold shoulder uh, for cho- for choosing that kind of path. Um, people who are are prodigals often feel as though the church is a, is a place of, of of lacking doubt that you can't express your doubt. Um, and you know, people that are nomads, or these that feel they have to choose between their faith and their friends, or they may feel the church is repressive because they become sexually active. Um, so there's an interesting sort of interplay. But those are some of the broad themes that we discovered.
0: Now, the the interesting thing as he as he goes into each of these points, and I don't think he sees this. If you go back and you listen to this actual podcast episode, I don't think you ever see that he's really deeply connecting each of these and i'm simply knowing what i know and seeing what i've seen i'm convinced that these issues are interconnected and and so we have to ask what makes this generation different this this younger generation what makes them different that they're walking away from their church and and each of these points he makes i mean they are individual specific reasons but but the question is if we if we elevate ourselves to this 20,000 foot view, what is the connection between each of these? And so what I want to do is go through these one by one. We'll just parse out the segment you just heard one by one. And what I hope to do after each clip is to tell you the ground that Mormonism wants to hold and the ground that these folks who are leaving feel compelled to hold. And let's see what the commonalities are. And so back to the first clip from David Kenneman.
1: Well, you know, we went into this book and the research behind it assuming that there would be a a smoking gun, a real, you know, glaring problem that the church could correct. Um, You know, frankly, in the previous book that we had done, looking at the perceptions of evangelicals uh, and modern-day Christianity among young non-Christians, we did find a smoking gun, and that was this perception of being anti-homosexual uh that was the big perception. Ninety one percent of young non Christians say that the, the church is anti homosexual. It's it's against the, the lifestyle and, and you know attitudes and perspectives of those who are who are gay and lesbian.
0: So it's it's the anti LGBT stance. And the ground that Mormonism feels compelled to hold. Not I'm I'm hoping I can walk you through this. And and i'm trying to be as sensitive as i can i actually recorded this episode the other day and i and I, I loved it and it contained a lot of passion but i also worried that i wasn't soft enough to to maintain the audience that i want to maintain and so in our lgbt perspective within the church the church here's the ground they need to hold the old testament teaches that homosexuality is wrong the old testament also teaches that eating pork is wrong wearing wool with cotton and other fabrics together is is wrong There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that we no longer hold to. And and Christianity is so very different than the Israelite faith. And yet we feel bound in some ways to parts of the Old Testament. And part of that is that the Old Testament taught, or at least we've interpreted to have taught, that homosexuality is wrong. And in spite of the fact that Jesus says nothing negative on homosexuality in his mortal life, Paul in the New Testament has absolutely nothing from Jesus to go on. And we often think Paul is a Christian, but the reality is that for the first you know, 100, 200, 300 years of of that, that happened after Jesus' mortal life, we like to say these people are Christians who are following Jesus or believing in him as a Messiah. The reality is they're Jews. They're a fringe group of Jews who believe in Jesus. Now, because they're Jews, they still adhere in large respects to the Jewish faith. And so Paul in the New Testament, having no answer from Jesus, the only choice he has is to refer back to Judaism and to ask, what does Judaism say about homosexuality? And so Paul repeats the Old Testament perspective. Fast forward to the restoration. The Book of Mormon written for our day says nothing on homosexuality. The Doctrine and Covenants written in our day says nothing about homosexuality. The Pearl of Great Price says nothing about homosexuality. The issue is that modern day prophets from Joseph Smith on, and we can pick out some of those, including Joseph maybe, there, there may be a very limited number of quotes on homosexuality with any one of these prophets. Some of these prophets said nothing. But from Joseph Smith on, in the Restoration, our church has put forth a theology and a rhetoric that clings to this Old Testament view or interpretation that homosexuality is wrong and clings to Paul. Again, we don't have Jesus saying it, but we have the Old Testament, we have Paul, and we have the prophets in this dispensation. For them to walk away from that, there has to be a lot of risk. I, I feel it. Like I feel like our theology has to has to cave into some things. If, if we, if we adapt to the LGBT issue and say, look, man, the Old Testament simply got it wrong. Paul's simply referring to them and hence he got it wrong. And unfortunately, lots of our prophets in this dispensation got it wrong. All of a sudden you're essentially saying like, what is scripture? What is a prophet? And are these things trustworthy? And so Mormonism clings to these things. For Mormonism, it needs prophets to no ifs ands or buts. Know the mind and will of God, and they just can't be this wrong. And so there's a lot of resistance. There's there's very little willingness to to question ourselves inwardly and say, "Man, did, did we goof this up? Did we way overreach on this?" At the same time, the the generation that are between my age and my kids' age, you know, those in their twenties. They're looking around, especially the younger kids. I mean, you look at kids in my, you know, my children who are teenagers and, and you look at the generation that's coming that are just, just toddlers and, and adult, you know, young adolescents and, and they're beginning to kind of enter those teenage years. These folks are looking around and they've got gay friends and they realize this isn't a choice and they realize this is not, this is the, the hardest thing in the world is to ask these people to be alone. And and they're seeing the science come out, and they're realizing that more than likely, I mean, almost guaranteed, this is biological. And if it's biological, and these kids are born this way, again, there may be some fluidity in this issue. I know studies have come out and said that this isn't a hard and fast thing. When someone says they're gay, 10 years later, it may have shifted a little bit. Yeah, I agree. There may be some fluidity here, that a teenager may come to a parent and say, man, I I think maybe I kind of like both genders. And, and as a few years go by, that kind of sorts itself out. But to say someone's on the one end of the Kinsey scale and truly is on that side, and then five years later they're on the other side, I just don't think that's the case. And I don't think the evidence gives us that kind of a perspective. And so we have to be careful that we're interpreting these studies properly. But I can tell you that I know enough gay people to know... Every single story to a T. These 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 people, these kids, these these folks that I know, they haven't shifted that far, and they've been this way as far back as they can remember. And and to a to a T, they say, "I didn't choose this. I can't I can't choose to not be this." And so the church has tried to make this more about behavior, but that's not the way the church always framed it. And so I think this has gotten really difficult because the reality and the science say one thing. And the church, out of necessity, is holding to ground somewhere else. And I think we did the same thing back in the 60s, in the 50s, and the 40s, when it came to theories around why our black brothers and sisters couldn't participate in the temple, and why our black brothers couldn't hold priesthood. And we finally just saw the light, like we couldn't hold this ground. It was untenable. And I think for the church, this very moment that this ground they're going to find to trying to hold the ground they are is untenable. And I have to ask myself if, if somebody, if if the 1978 revelation had never occurred and we fast forward from 78 to today, 2016, and we still don't let black men and women into our temples and we don't allow black men to hold the priesthood. I've got to believe that we would essentially be irrelevant. We would just be nothing. Who would join our church? Who would join our church? When we have this bigotry bigotry and this racism in our faith, nobody would join it. And so I ask myself, if we fast forward 40 years, if anybody would join a homophobic church then with 40 more years of data, and this turns out to no ifs, ands, or buts be biological, and that being gay is in the same kind of line as being left-handed— and we've simply marginalized these folks because they're so different than us and we've we've said they're weird and this is sin and they're choosing this because they're such a small small, small uh, there's such a small segment of of our society and it's so easy for the privileged majority to always minimize those who are different and in the minority but maybe this is no different than being left-handed and if it is no different than being left-handed and how could we ask the younger generation who's up to date on the data to still hold to these old, false, bigoted and homophobic views? And then you take that the fact that there's these, these 80 year old men, 70, 80, 90 year old men running the church. And these guys, I mean, you go back to the 1980s when these guys were in their prime, when they said, this is the way my society worked and this is the way it would, man, just go back to the good old days. In those good old days, gay people were much more on the fringe in terms of people being out of the closet and, and public about being gay. The fact that these people were so marginalized by their societies that they often led very rebellious lives that included sexual promis- promiscuity, included, uh, you know, dressing in flamboyant colors and, and in your face parades. And the AIDS virus was like this thing that was so discussed then. And when I look at the leaders of our church, I mean, I'm 38 years old. I was born in 1978. And I look at the leaders of our church, and those 1980s, those 1970s and 80s, that was their prime. And when I look back at 19, the 1978 revelation, I say, what did it take for these men to make this adjustment? And it's easy to see that these men grew up in the 30s, in the 40s, and in the 50s. And to make this kind of adaptation was just completely counter. To their identity and to their being, and I think today's leaders are in that same conundrum. They've they've grown up in a false paradigm, and now that reality is here, they don't see how they can even open their eyes or their hearts to the reality of the data. And so kids are leaving.
1: And um, what we discovered in the "You Lost Me" research is that there isn't really a smoking gun. That each of the reasons that people leave are very personal. Um, very distinct. Um, There are some broad patterns. So we could say the church was often perceived as overprotective. It, It had kind of kept people sheltered from the world.
0: Overprotective or sheltered? I mean, this is Mormonism to a T. Our leaders have said that they're trying to be more transparent. Some have even said we're being transparent right now. And that's not true. It's not true. There's still things we don't want to say. We still want to frame things in the most faithful Way, even if the data, the data's most reasonable conclusion is to take another perspective. And, and so the, the stance the church wants to hold is that we can't let go of our story. We can't alter our history that deeply. We can't change the narrative that much. Otherwise when we get to the other side, we won't have Mormonism. At the same time, the younger generation, the 20 year olds and the teenagers and the, and the little ones that are coming up, they're having to wrestle. We as a church are having to wrestle this very moment with the fact, as Bushman says, the dominant narrative is not true. The story we were told doesn't hold up. And so we're trying to figure out, like, how do we, how do we reframe this without losing a ton of people? But if we don't reframe it, we're going to lose a ton. And so the church is trying to hold this ground where, look, we're true. We're built on these things and these things simply have to stay. But for these kids, the data tells them that this doesn't add up. This is not adding up. When you look at all of the difficult issues, you begin to realize this doesn't add up. And I'll I'll give some examples. When you look at a global flood, the church needs, for its theology, it needs the flood to be global. You say, well, no big deal, let it be a local flood. But the problem is Jesus in Third Nephi talks about the flood and the waters covering the earth. And so it's one thing if Noah's standing around and looking as far as the eye can see and saying, look, these waters covered the earth. It's another thing when the resurrected Jesus on a completely different continent testifying to a completely um, separate people from this incident and testifies to them that this flood on some level was global, it becomes problematic. And so the church needs to hold this global flood narrative or be silent on it so as not to give any room officially for it to be anything less than a global flood and at the same time the younger members of the church are saying it's ridiculous there's just no way that water's covered the earth how did how did one man or one family build a ship that was big enough to house all the animals on the earth tight enough that it didn't leak water that that there was ways in which to pick up the all the the you know crap that these animals would would defecate during the day and during the night for that matter like, how do we keep this clean? How do we, how do we, how do we get this stuff off the boat? How do we take care of all these animals? How do we feed them? And, and just the animals getting to the boat, like two penguins, male and female, need to get to the ark. How did they get there? Certain animals have certain diets. Certain animals have to stay in certain climates. Like, a global flood is ridiculous. It's impossible. And other things too, like the Tower of Babel, that there was one tower you know, four to 6,000 years ago, four thousand, forty five hundred, whatever it is. And that tower went all the way to heaven and all the languages parsed out from that. When you look at the data, that's, that's ridiculous. We know how languages develop. We can point to where they are. We can, we can show scientifically where these languages go back to, where do they originate? Where do they parse out from? And the trouble is if we, the church needs to hold to a literal tower of Babel because that story is in the Book of Mormon. If there is no Tower of Babel, there is no Brother of Jared. And that becomes really problematic for the Book of Mormon. The Book of Genesis talks about a garden and a fall and a creation and those, those early on ideas and, and those very things don't hold up. The fact that people live to be six, seven, eight, and even 900 years old before the invention of modern medicine simply doesn't hold up. And, and the younger generation, they're seeing the biblical scholarship. They're being exposed to people who have very different beliefs. And they're recognizing that when you get into a conversation, that the more reasonable, intelligent converse, uh, data points, um, that the more reasonable, intelligent perspective that envelops these data points is going to win. And they realize that when they try to hold to a global flood, to a Tower of Babel, to 900-year-old men, to a garden 6,000 years ago where there was no death before the fall – they're realizing that it just doesn't hold. It's ridiculous. It doesn't hold up. It, it simply doesn't. And and I got to speak just from my own my own heart. Like we just got to understand. Like the church doesn't really want us to know all the data because once we do, there's really little choice but to let go of literal belief. And so the church wants to be wants to build a whole have control of holding back information. It wants to control the narrative, and and the narrative is no longer under its control. It now realizes that if it says something false in a new manual, it will be mocked to death for doing so. And so, saying that Thomas Marsh left over milk and strippings, or Simon's rider left because his name was spelled wrong, these stories are going to disappear. Saying that Brigham Young transfigured after the death of Joseph Smith, and everyone knew that it was that that the mantle had fallen upon Brigham. When you read the data, these miracle stories of seagulls and crickets and and. In Brigham Young's transfiguration and and other stories that we've been told, there, there's just not as much support for them anymore as there used to be. And and so the the risk is the the church realizes it can't give into this because people will have their faith turn to a less literal, and they also realize that these people will place less trust and hence give less authority to these leaders. And so the church has to struggle to figure out how to hold on to it. And yet the reality, the data, and just to be honest, the truth shows that Bushman's right. The dominant narrative is not true. And so people are leaving.
1: Uh, they believe the church is anti-science, that it's sort of out of step with the scientific world that we live in.
0: This idea of being anti-science, we, we hit a little bit on it in the last little segment there. But l- let me, let me say, it's in, for the church to hold its authority, it needs there to be a literal Moses, Noah, and Abraham. It needs Noah to have built a giant ship and to have survived a global flood. It needs Abraham to truly have been this this father given these blessings as the father of Israel by our by our God. It needs Abraham to have truly been told by God to sacrifice Isaac. It it needs this Abraham to be a real person and the experiences he had to be real. It needs Moses to be real and it needs Moses' miracles of parting the Red Sea and of leading the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. It needs those things to be real. It needs the Book of Mormon to be historical. It needs prophets, seers, and revelators today to be trusted as the literal mouthpieces of God. And and the trouble is the data takes us away from that. The data tells us that when we understand biblical studies and scholarship... When we understand human behavior, when we understand psychology. When we understand what goes into storytelling. When we understand the Jewish culture, when we put all these things together, we realize that Moses, Noah, and Abraham are likely not real people. We recognize that even if they are real, that the stories attributed to them are not real, and even if they are real, they're heavily exaggerated. and And suddenly, is someone like Job a real person? Is someone like Noah a real person? Is Moses a real person? Is Abraham a real person? And some of this mess even goes into the New Testament when we realize the Synoptic Gospels and the Q source and, and Paul being written before any of the Gospels were and John being very different from the Synoptic Gospels and Mark being written first and Matthew and Luke stealing a lot of Mark's material. And I say that in a, in a nice way. I don't mean that like as in stealing. I just mean like using, utilizing and, and copying much of Mark's material, but also kind of battling each other to share a different story and that that there's so many contradictions in the New Testament. When one recognizes that the data points to there being three authors of Isaiah and the third author of Isaiah is a person who lives and writes after Lehi has already left for the Americas, and yet somehow third Isaiah shows up in the Book of Mormon, when you realize how messy this gets when, when you think of how Mormonism used to hold to the fact that the earth was 6,000 years old, that evolution was a heresy to a literal garden, to the really being six, seven, 800, 900 year old men to, to the Lamanites being the Hawaiians and Polynesians along with the South Americans and Mexicans and others. When, when you, when you start to dive into each of these issues, you realize that science is butting heads with so much of the church's theology and doctrine and that the church has to maintain this this orthodox old way of seeing things it cannot give in to biblical scholarship the church is so far behind in biblical scholarship to, for even a BYU seminary teacher uh, who's who's going through the education field so he can go out and take a career as a seminary teacher someone who's going to be in the CES program who's who's being professionally trained to teach religious ideas, history, and doctrine to students, he is he is so far behind. He is teaching perspectives and views that were let go of by informed circles a hundred years ago, but the church can't give it up. If the church relinquishes this ground, again, everything changes, and the narrative has to change, and these top 15 men will have to relinquish a large chunk of their authority, and they won't do that. And yet these kids, these kids are seeing that the earth is billions of years old. They're seeing that no death before the fall is silly. They're seeing that a global flood is impossible. They're recognizing that even in the Book of Mormon, where 2,000 stripling warriors, 2,000 inexperienced teenagers who go to fight against a larger, more battle-experienced army, and yet among these 2,000, not one soul is lost, 200 faint from blood loss, and yet they don't stop so that these wounds can heal. Nobody gets gangrene and dies. Instead, a couple days later, these guys all make their way to the next area and join in another battle. The reality is that's not reality. The facts say that can't happen. It's not a matter of just having faith. It's a matter that the story is so absurd based on the way life happens And the reality of what could even possibly be a miracle. And and then just miracles by themselves, right? Before verifiable history. Before people could capture videos on their phones. Before there were uh, newspapers and multiple witnesses to events that could keep track of those records. And those records could be compared to other witnesses. Before verifiable history, seas were parted. Waters covered the earth. Really, fires came down from heaven. Really magnificent miracles occurred. And anytime someone couldn't explain why something happened, they explained it with God. They explained it with religion. It's why certain cultures threw virgins into volcanoes. This volcano is going to erupt. The gods must be angry. We must appease them. Grab a virgin, throw her in. And if the volcano ceased to erupt, if that volcano did not spew out its magma, then the gods were appeased. And if it continued, then the gods were still angry. And Christianity is no different than that. If some she-bears maul some kids, then darn it, that must have been God answering Elijah's prayer. But that's not realistic, because the moment we enter into an age of verifiable history... Especially today when people have their smartphones, and we've got newspapers, and we've got reporters, and we've got history books, and we've got witnesses who who are testifying in multiple sources and various venues rather than one person during one age. And suddenly all of those miracles cease. Seas are no longer parted. Waters no longer cover the earth. God no longer strikes its critics of his prophets dumb or blind. Instead, life just seems to be life. Sure, are some people healed? Absolutely. But I also read some study that one out of 20 cancer cases, they just go away on their own. Like, they're still miracles, but maybe they're miracles because we haven't figured out how to explain them yet. And we're still clinging to God as the reason those things happen the way they do. And so the church needs to hold to old, false, outdated views. While at the same time, these kids, those people younger than me, they see the reality of this world, and it's not matching up. They see prophets, seers, and revelators who don't prophesy, see, or revelate claim to be the exact same kind of prophets, seers, and revelators as this Moses, Noah, and Abraham. And they recognize that those kinds of things aren't happening, and that the most reasonable logical reason is that those things never happened. And people are leaving.
1: Uh, they feel as though the church is exclusive, that they have to choose between their faith and their friends. Uh...
0: Our church has exclusive truth claims. These exclusive truth claims tell us something about ourselves, that we're better. That there's something special about us. And that it's our job to bring the rest of the world in. That we're exclusive in terms of what is acceptable to God and what isn't in spite of the fact that the data points that some of these differences are just normal biological differences. And so as Mormonism is exclusive in saying, look, you have to be straight and in a heterosexual marriage to live in the highest kingdom of the celestial kingdom, like you have to be a certain way. And when, and when Elder Clayton at a recent conference tells Latter-day Saints to disconnect from their friends and their family, who are critical of the church, like sometimes we hold on to exclusive claims. We say, hey, we've got the truth and this is what you have to do and be like to fit in. And at the same time, if those things you require of others to believe or to behave like don't match up with reality, science, information, and data, then there is this tension between trying to stay in Mormonism and to be a Mormon, in your identity, while at the same time trying to hold on to truth and reality and not being absurd in how you interact with the world. And this tension is becoming so great that as the church draws more and more lines in the sand, rather than just, let's get rid of these lines. And when those lines are untenable for someone who is informed and who understands information and data, then that that tension becomes so great that these people are leaving
1: Clearly, sexuality is a huge uh, point of disconnection in terms of you know what the church teaches on various subjects uh, to um, you know whole host of of, of, of issues that come up in, in terms of sexuality.
0: I don't want to stay on this one for long. I will simply say that within Mormonism, there is a lot of sexual dysfunction. As as Elizabeth Smart has been going around and giving some of these talks and in speaking to. Some of the sexual dysfunction that 's in our culture, as i 've heard of lessons with lit cupcakes and chewed gum, as I realize some of the the dysfunction as as a couple gets married in our faith and having to work through these negative stigmas on sex and sexuality, as we begin to to sexually identify people that to say things. That, that tend to run counter to the science on LGBT issues. To say gender is eternal, while at the same time some people have both genitalia, some people are intersex and have both. To say that men act like men and women act like women, and to totally avoid the transgender issue, shows that we have so much growing up to do on issues of sexuality. But see, again, the church needs to hold this ground, because this ground is ground that God has always held According to our church and according to the history going back, that the Old Testament God is very demanding and has very definitive lines on sexuality. And so they can't give this God up. They can't have him change. They can't have him relinquish his views because he's the same today, tomorrow, and forever. And so as, as our church and Christianity in general and certain, certain denominations of it have, feel compelled seem to have no choice in their mind but to hold this old orthodoxy, these old perspectives that run counter to the data, to the science, and to the human experience. And these young kids seeing and feeling this tension and recognizing that their church is no longer doing things that seem reasonable, seem logical, seem to match their experience. And so they're leaving
1: Um, A lot of times there's a a sense in which the church is in a safe place uh, to ask about doubts, uh, to to express the most pressing life questions that they they harbor.
0: Not a safe place to talk about doubts, to ask about your doubt, to, to ask questions. This isn't a safe place. Mormonism is not a safe place. Because here's the issue. The moment you open a class up to discussing tough questions... Is the moment that we, that one side who wants to hold on to comfortable false beliefs and the other side presenting reasonable logical data. And in in my mind and in my experience, as I've seen this happen, there's no doubt in my mind that there is a movement towards the data and towards the science and towards the reality of human experience. You can try to hold old ground. It doesn't work in the long run. And so when you say something that's smart and informed in class, the majority of that room is feeling that cognitive dissonance between the inconvenient truth and the comfortable false beliefs. The one which they want to hold, and yet the other one which makes more sense. And so the church tries to say that it welcomes questions, that questions are honored. The reality is it doesn't really honor them, because to honor a question, you field it, and you try to answer it. And yet, I could ask a simple question, like, is the priesthood ban that was in place prior to 78, did that come by revelation to bring him Young, or was that simply a racist, bigoted view that he held? And I would even permit the general authorities to, of the church to say, I don't know. And to me, that would be a perfectly acceptable answer. And yet, anytime you ask that question, I guarantee the question will get changed, just like other questions have been changed. It will get dodged or dismissed, or it will be um, handed off to someone below the official level. And that's because questions really can't be answered. Because even to answer them, not because there's not an answer, but because even to answer them with an I don't know, forces us us to change our narrative and to relinquish authority. And so doubt, doubt is a bad thing. We can say it's not a bad thing. We can give conference talks that say it's not. But try going into a room and asking a tough question Try going into a class and saying, I doubt that 2,000 stripling warriors could all live through a hand-to-hand combat battle with a larger, more experienced army. Try walking into a class and saying, I doubt that Adam's posterity, including Adam himself, lived to be 400 years old up to 900 years old. I doubt that. Try walking into a class and saying, I doubt the Flood was global. Try walking into a room and saying, I doubt that these top 15 men... See and talk to Jesus in a face-to-face manner. Try walking into a classroom and saying, I doubt the Book of Mormon is historical. Try walking into a classroom and saying, I doubt that Joseph Smith followed the rules of polygamy that God laid out in section 132. Try saying, I doubt... That there was a real global flood and that Noah built a ship big enough to house two of every animal and sometimes seven of every animal. And that somehow all these animals in various places of the world that need to live in certain climates and need to have certain diets somehow made it across the world to the ark. Try walking into a classroom and asking really tough questions that nobody in that room has a really good answer for. And you can see that the church has to maintain And unquestioning obedience. And yet this younger generation have their smartphones. They have, they have the world of information at the tips of their fingers. And when someone says something, they're immediately going to that device and they're finding whether that's true or not. And so the reality of their experience and their understanding doesn't match the ground that the church needs to hold. And the tension is so great that people are Leaving.
1: And so, out of out of those different perceptions, you know, each kind of relates to a particular kind of group. So, I mean, uh, an exi- exile is very likely to feel as though the church is overprotective. You know, they feel called maybe into performing music or being um, in a particular, you know, kind of career. Um, Anti science, also a perception of many exiles. You know, they feel as though they'd like to be involved in, in a scientific career, and, and the church sort of gives them. Uh, you know, a, a cold shoulder uh, for cho- for choosing that kind of path. Um, people who are are prodigals often feel as though the church is a, is a place of, of, of lacking doubt, that you can't express your doubt. Um, and, you know, people that are nomads or these that feel they have to choose between their faith and their friends, or they may feel the church is repressive because they become sexually active. Um, so there's an interesting sort of interplay, but those are some of the broad themes that we discovered.
0: So now if we elevate ourselves to this 20,000-foot view, here's what I think is the connecting piece. As information becomes so widely available, if somebody says something in a class, I can get on my phone, I can go to the Internet, I can type in a subject, I can look up studies, I can look up Wikipedia, I can see what, what other people are saying on the topic, I can read blog posts, I can listen to podcasts. I can become an informed person. And the more informed people become, the less orthodox they are. You see, the more informed somebody is, the more they realize the difference of experience, the more you get to know people who are different than you. It used to be if you grew up in Utah, everybody in your neighborhood was Mormon. Everybody in your neighborhood was white. Everybody in your neighborhood was a certain socioeconomic status, everyone in your neighborhood matched up exactly with your own family. And as time has gone on, the world has become smaller. And by that, I mean that you have friends on Facebook who live in other countries. You have friends on Facebook who don't fit the sexual normative of the church. You have friends on Facebook who are different socioeconomic statuses. You have friends on Facebook who have different political preferences. You have friends on Facebook whose life experience is dramatically different. It's easy to maintain the old view of Mormonism. It was easy to maintain that false dominant narrative when everyone around you believe the same things. And man, we all believe the world's 6,000 years old and How can that be called into question? We all know it's true. The moment you step outside of your shoes and put yourself into the shoes of other people, you realize that there are other perspectives out there and they hold more water than your perspective. They hold more weight than your perspective. I have family members who are racist to the core, and they've gotten away with it their entire life because they've been surrounded by people like them. But we live in a world today where people growing up, this is going to become less and less possible, that we all become more accepting and inclusive of those with differences because we're seeing what those people with differences look like, what they say, what they think, we're seeing how the world treats them. We're seeing what is the appropriate way to treat another human being. And we've got examples of people who are standing up and saying, I don't care what's going on in my tribe. We're not going to do that, and I certainly won't stand for it. And this younger generation is exposed to this. They're exposed to different people in social media. They're exposed to different people as they follow music or movies or conversations going on in blogs, or as they listen to podcast, and so the younger generation is becoming more and more distanced from orthodoxy. Now, a second point, as we talk about faith development, we know the idea you can't go back, and as I look for people who are really wise and they've they've moved into these later stages of faith development they don't they don't see the world black and white; their authority is inside of themselves. There are, there are people in what Fowler called stage three. There are people in a black and white stage who look outside of themselves to authorities. Those people, every day, some of them are changing into those who no longer see black and white and whose authority is inside of themselves. But there are zero, listen to me, there are zero people on the other side of that who have moved through the faith transition, who have come out the other side, with this very inclusive, empathetic, non-black-and-white judgment, this this uh, non-extrinsic authority, nobody on that side of the development is going back to orthodoxy. And so the folks who are inclusive and empathetic and who understand the reality of those who are different than them and are open to those folks having just as true of a life as as I hold or you hold, those folks are helping all of us to change. Meanwhile, the orthodoxy isn't converting anyone. Nobody who's moved out of orthodoxy to nuance moves back to orthodoxy. It doesn't happen. Nobody who begins to enjoy the contradictions, complexities, and messiness of life goes back to a rigidity and fundamentalism. It doesn't happen. And so the church is at this precipice moment where it has to choose whether it holds on to orthodoxy and and in turn becomes so less relevant to the point where someday it will be irrelevant completely and to the point where it will be so much more rigid and fundamental and hence the size of the church will become smaller and smaller or it has to change its narrative. It has to expand its theology to accept those with differences, including LGBT individuals, and its leaders have to relinquish authority. And I don't know whether that happens or not. I know Patrick Mason is nervous. I know I'm nervous. I sense that Richard Bushman and others are nervous. So the church is at this moment. There's a fork in the road, and it has to choose. Is it going to relinquish authority? Is it going to drastically change its narrative? And is it going to drastically change its theology? Is it going to drastically relinquish its authority to say, look, we're prophets, but not in the way that you thought we were. We're not like Moses, Noah, and Abraham. And in fact, you don't even have to believe in Moses, Noah, and Abraham as literal historical figures who did literal historical grand marvelous miracles. It's going to have to relinquish its theology. It's going to have to make room For LGBT folks, it's going to have to learn to apologize for its mistakes. It's going to have to learn to say, man, we don't have to hold people to this ground. We're going to have to relinquish it because the data is on their side, not ours. And is it going to drastically change its narrative to match up with the data? Is it going to relinquish its miracle stories? Is it going to relinquish the stories it's told itself about why people leave the church? Is it going to relinquish the stories it's told itself about how gay people somehow can, can defeat this, this biological, natural thing that makes up who they are and their very core of their identity? Is Mormonism going to cling with a death grip to the stories it's told itself? And, and the reality is that whenever religion In science or religion and data go head to head, religion certainly holds a death grip as it's being dragged away. It certainly goes kicking and screaming, but it goes nonetheless. Religion retreats. In my mind, I can't name one instance where religion and science butt heads and religion walks away the victor. I don't see it. There are such things as matters of faith. Did Jesus rise on the third day or not? We can't prove one way or the other. It's certainly scientifically shown that that's not a natural thing that could happen. But at the same time, we're saying this man is extraordinary, and this claim is unprovable. The trouble is when you come to other things like the flood, there is geologic evidence. And what would have to take place to allow that narrative to hold up is just absurd, like, completely unreasonable, and the evidence is mounted against it. When science and religion go head-to-head, religion always takes its time. It always goes dragging. It always goes clinging with its nails to the ground, scratching and clawing. It always goes kicking and screaming, but it goes, nonetheless. And so Mormonism, I'm looking to you right now, to the top 15 meters of the church, I'm looking to you right now, you have to see the writing on the wall, and you don't have time to do a slow change. I think I think your predecessors did. And I think they took advantage of that. But I think now we live in a different age. We live in an information age. You can't go slow. Every day that goes by that you hold your old ground, you are becoming less relevant. So it's my prayer that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can find some way to hold on to some of the dynamic truth claims that I've come to love but can also find a way to relinquish authority, to have its history truly match up with the data more effectively, and that it would be willing to change its theology to be more accepting and inclusive of all of God's children, for all are alike unto God. It's my prayer that these men will have the courage, the wherewithal, and the awareness, and the sense of the moment that they live in, It's my prayer that you, top 15, I love you. It's my prayer that you might be open to dramatic revelation, regardless of whether Jesus is in the room or not. That's my prayer. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.